Good morning. Hear the word of the Lord to us. A couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 11 and a couple from 12. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation with joy. You will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy. O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Thanks, Cynthia. Good morning. When I finished my seminary training, I was looking for a place to uh, serve in a church, but God hadn't opened the door yet, so I worked rebuilding antique furniture at a place called Antique Village in Los Altos, California. The boss there, Larry made clear that our job was to completely rebuild the furniture. He would bring in truckloads from the Midwest of all this antique furniture. And even if it looked on the outside like it was pretty solid, we had to break it all apart and have it stripped and then start from scratch and rebuild it. And if any broken pieces, we had to make new pieces. And then finally, when it was all fit together and glued together, made solid... Then it would be refinished, and then he would sell it. And if we ever tried to make any shortcuts to the process, he was not pleased, and it didn't work. Anything less than rebuilding it really from the ground up was unacceptable. Well, God's at work in our world, obviously. And in particular, he's at work in our lives as his followers, as his believers, to accomplish his purposes in us. But... We need to have a clear vision for what he wants to accomplish. Just like in my job, we knew the end result had to be a completely rebuilt piece of furniture. So God wants us to have a vision and an understanding of what he's doing in our lives. Otherwise, we'll get frustrated if we try to accomplish something less than what God is already doing in our lives. I think too often... We come to God and we want God just to replace maybe a broken piece or two. (laughs) Maybe uh, polish us up a bit, maybe refinish us, but don't really dig too deeply. (laughs) 
Don't rebuild us from the ground up. But God makes clear that that's his goal. He wants to not leave us as we are, but to transform us into people who can truly, truly praise him. You see, God has a much bigger vision for us, for you, for me, than we have for ourselves. And why is that? Because he created us. He knows what we're made for. He knows what will bring true joy in our lives. And too often we want to settle for less than what God's best is for us. You see, God wants us to experience that deep joy that he created us for. But he knows there's only one way to get there. And that's really to transform us from the inside out. So what is God's vision? Uh, if, if we just said, okay, this is perfect humanity. This is what God has for us. This is where God is moving every one of us as believers. What would you say? See, I think our passage today gives us a wonderful picture of what that end vision is from God for every one of us. So let's pray so that we can begin and dig in and let God accomplish his work in us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you as a people that we admit too often we just want you to fine-tune us, not put in a new engine. <laughs> and so we pray that this passage would give us that vision that you have for us of what you want us to become so that we might cooperate with you in what you are already doing in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think this passage breaks down into just two parts, that God wants to create a unified people and a worshiping people. A unified people, verses 11 through 16 of chapter 11. As you recall, last week, hopefully if you were here, 11, 1 through 10 is this glorious vision of Jesus on his throne. When he reigns over the new heavens and the new earth, and it was a beautiful picture of the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the different animals and a little child shepherding dangerous animals. Why? Because God will bring absolute, complete peace in the new heavens and the new earth. Creation will be remade. It'll be awesome. There'll be real shalom, real peace. And I can't wait for that. But now as, as Isaiah finishes this section of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 7 through chapter 12, it's often called the book of Emmanuel. It's it's the book about Jesus coming and, and Isaiah giving the people of Israel this vision and us a vision of what God wants to accomplish through Messiah. But the very culmination, this last section, is not just about a new heavens and new earth, but it's about a new people. What God has for us, what he longs for us to become. It's a vision of a new humanity, his goal for every human being on earth. So in 11, uh, 11 through 16, we see what God does to bring his people to this place of being a unified people in harmony. In verse 11, it says, in that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time, like he did in the Exodus, bringing his people out to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush. And he names all these different places. And if you look at it geographically, what it says is that God wants to bring his people together from all over the world because Assyria is in the north and in the south in Egypt and from the east and the west. 
and he, he wants to bring all his people together. But notice verse 12, he will raise a signal or a banner for all the nations. It isn't just Israel he's talking about. He's not just talking about Jews. He's talking about wanting to create a people from all the nations who come together and are unified. That's God's vision for his people from the four corners of the earth. It's a focus on the Jewish people, but includes all the nations, God's plan. But think about that for a minute with me. If you bring people from all over the world and you bring them all together in one place, that can be a little bit scary, right? (laughs) As fallen human beings, if you bring us together, what happens? Conflict. (laughs) Fighting. That's why cities can be wonderful places, but they're also very dangerous places. Because you get a lot of people together and it can be pretty scary because of the sin that's multiplied there. But notice what God says he will do in verse 13. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart. And those who harass or who are hostile to Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah and Judah will not be hostile or harass. Ephraim will not be hostile towards. What it's saying here is that, see, God's plan is he'll bring us together. But not only that, he will transform us from the inside out the things that divide us as his people he will root out of us he mentions jealousy and much of our conflict is because of jealousy because of other people because of what they have or they are or how they look or what they wear or what they drive or and we become jealous and hostile and we write people off or hostility whatever makes us angry towards other people It says God will eradicate those. See, God hates church splits over trivial things. God hates our injured pride that causes us to write people off and walk away and leave one another. And so what it says is God will be relentless to root those things out of our hearts. Anger, resentment, jealousy. And one that's mentioned often in the New Testament, unforgiveness. God will be ruthless to root those kinds of things out. I've always been really struck by passages like, and there's several like this, but in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, after the Lord's Prayer, he says, you know, in the prayer, it says, uh, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then verse 14 of chapter 6 of Matthew. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as pretty harsh. Sounds like works, right? Somehow. But I think we need to understand the heart of God that He hates it when we hang on to unforgiveness and it divides us because God's vision for us is that we would be a forgiving people as we've been forgiven by him and we would extend that to one another. Yes, we will harm each other. But can we extend that and forgive one another? God calls us to. You see, it's a reflection of God himself when we forgive and let those things go. I've told the story 
several times of the church. When I came to Christ, I went to a church in Hines, Oregon, a Baptist church that there was a first Baptist in Burns, but they had split several years before because of a conflict between two men on the church board, personal conflict. But I came to Christ and then went away to college. And while I was at college, those two men came back together, forgave one another, and they sold both buildings and built a new church, reunited church right on the border between Burns and Hines. And a few years later, I came and pastored there for two years. You see, God allowed that church, I think, to have a greater impact in the community because it was beginning to fulfill the vision that God had called all of us to, a unity in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we need to be careful about maintaining the unity that God's called us to as brothers and sisters. I want to say, speak a little family business right now. A lot of us have really strong feelings about the election. Some of you have said or posted things on social media that have been very condemning of people who have voted differently than you and created real hurt in other people's hearts in this body. And let me say that that's sin. That's divisive. It's okay to have strong opinions. But when you condemn others who think differently, that's a sin in the body of Christ. And believe me, there are good reasons, biblical reasons, to have voted for Donald Trump. There are good biblical reasons to have voted for Hillary Clinton. There are good biblical reasons to either have not voted or to vote for a third-party candidate. And when you condemn people who think differently than you, you are dividing the body and creating harm. Some of us need to repent and, where possible, make things right. See, verse 13, God will be relentless to root out the things in us that divide us, whatever that might be. Verse 14, he says, They shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, shall obey them. Literally, the Ammonites shall be a bodyguard. God will remove the internal conflicts that divide us, but he will also take away the external conflicts so that these nations that were against the people of Israel, God would render ineffective and powerless. In fact, Ammonites, the enemies, would become bodyguards for God's people. God has a way of doing that. God is so committed to the health and unity of the body of Christ He will remove internal and external barriers to unity. He'll remove the power of Satan, which he has, the power of the world over us, so that we can be the people of God that he wants us to be. And then verse 15 and 16, it's a wonderful picture of how God will remove all obstacles to this unity he has in mind for us. It describes taking the mighty Euphrates River, which was impossible to cross. It was such a mighty river. And it says he will break it into seven little streams so you can walk across, walk through it in your sandals so that you can be gathered to the people of God. It says he will build a highway from Assyria for his people to come home. Now, Assyria, as you recall, was a cruel nation and they didn't let anybody out. 
(laughs) Once they conquered you, they scattered you and you had no chance to come back together. But God says, who cares about Assyria? I will build a highway from Assyria so my people could come back and be gathered together with the other people of God. I love the way God does that. He has a way of gathering his people and making highways so that we can be together with people that are different than us. I think bringing all the refugees that he has brought to this valley is a wonderful way of God creating a highway from Assyria, Syria, (laughs) and all over the world, Africa, etc., to bring people together so that we will have an opportunity to rub shoulders with them and get to know them and love one another, become unified with believers in Jesus Christ. The globalization of the internet, the ease of travel in the world, all these are ways of God building a highway so that we can begin to relate to the world around us. I think they can be wonderful gifts for us of God's plan of bringing unity among God's people. You see, God's vision for his people and for all humanity is a beautiful unity where we're learning to love each other well to care for one another. We're all nations, all races, all economic levels, all education levels, all personality types, (laughs) and so forth, are learning to love each other and care for one another, even with all our differences. Last week, uh, almost two weeks ago now, we had a peace feast in this room. There were around 330 people here Close to half of them were immigrants, refugees, mostly refugees. Uh, Many of them were Muslim, but many of them were also Christians. And then a number of you, how many of you were here for that? A good number. Yeah. I don't know about the rest of you, but being here in that room and shaking hands with people from all over the world, saying hello, getting to know them and feasting together and laughing and playing games together in this room together, to me was an incredible picture of this passage, (laughs) of what God wants for us, that we might learn to reach out our hand and cross those barriers and begin to be the people of God where we're letting go of our prejudices, letting go of our pride, letting go of our demand that everybody think like us and begin to understand what it means to love people who are different. That's God's vision for the people of God, that we might be feasting together. (laughs) And let me say, this is not just an Old Testament vision, right? It's a New Testament vision. Listen to Jesus' words in his final prayer, John 17, before he went to the cross as he met with his disciples. What is his heart? Verse 20 of John 17, I do not ask for these only, that is, he's been praying for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who would that be? Oh, that's us. (laughs) That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says similar things elsewhere. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says, I urge you, brethren, to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And he goes on to stipulate what that means, humility and In the end, he said, verse 3 of Ephesians 4, he says, preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
He said, God's already made us one in Christ. That's our unifier is the spirit of God in us. So he says, preserve it. Don't break it up. You're already one with every other believer in the world. He says, preserve it. Don't destroy it. Don't let anything get in the way of that, but learn to delight in it and live in it. See, our unity, Jesus says, Paul says, should make us stand out in a world that is divided. And it seems to me it should go without saying, but I feel like I should say it anyway. Understand that unity does not mean that we embrace or have unity with evil. If you're in an abusive relationship, emotionally, physically, sexually abusive relationship, then you need to separate from that evil, at least for a time, to try to seek redemption and healing for that person. But just let me say this vision of God's unity is, is that it doesn't include staying in an abusive relationship. And let me say, why is unity so important to God? Why is that such a beautiful vision? And why does he hold that so highly? Why is it so important to him? Well, number one, because he created us and he knows what we're made for and that we're made for that. that that's where we will find the greatest joy in life is in learning to walk together as one. But secondly, it's because unity reflects God himself. God is three persons in one, a unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit dwelling together, perfect love, perfect unity. And that God's plan is that we would reflect his character to the world around us. So the world would look and say, how do they get along so well? How can they continue loving each other so well when they're so different? You see, that's God's vision for us and where he is moving us as the people of God. And let me say again, he will be relentless to deal with anything in us that prevents that kind of unity. So God has a vision for us that we would be this people together, unified, loving each other well. And secondly, his vision in chapter 12, 1 through 6, is that we would be a worshiping people. He longs for us to be a worshiping people. You see, God's desire for us is that we would have a joy that would really last. A kind of joy that truly is the joy he created us for. And he knows that that takes being in proper relationship with one another and proper relationship with him. Worshiping him, seeing him for who he truly is and responding out of our hearts to him where that attitude really is worship. And then Verses 1 through 3 talks really about a private worship, our personal life of worship with God. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is individual, right? I, me, my and so it's our personal worship with God. Sometimes we think of worship as just corporate. It includes that, but it's our personal relationship, our private worship for, with God that he wants first of all. Why worship? Why should we worship God? Well, he gives us three reasons in these couple of verses here. Why worship him? 
Number one, because it says God has taken away his anger. He has reconciled us to himself. I don't know if you understand how incredible that is. You see, because we're sinners and he's holy, God, not that he's up there just angry, but his holiness doesn't allow him to have relationship with us. But because Jesus took on all the wrath we deserved, he reconciled us. He took it away. And because of that, we should worship him for the incredible gift of life. He took our sins on the cross. And then it says he did all that, that he might comfort us. Another reason to worship him is because uh, that word comfort, it's not quite how we think about comfort. It's really a word that means it's a very emotional word. It speaks of a deep emotional care and compassion for another person. You see, God took away his wrath, not just so he could tolerate us. But he took away his wrath because he has a deep caring compassion for us and longs to be close to us. That's the kind of heart God has for us. That's the kind of love he has for us. Uh, it's a marvelous love he cares for. And then third, he says, that he used this word salvation several times, three times in verses two and three. Behold, God is my salvation. Now, that's a big theological word, right? Salvation. You know what it really means? It just means rescue. God's rescued us out of darkness, out of the realm of Satan and brought us into his family, his kingdom. And because of that, we ought to praise him. He saved us from ourselves, from our sin, from Satan's realm into the kingdom of God. So how are we to worship him then? What does it look like? Again, from these verses, number one, give thanks. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. We are most fulfilling what God's called us to be when we are giving thanks, I believe, in relationship to him. I really appreciate what David Roper wrote in a recent e-musing where he says this. Gratitude is salvific. That means it saves, right? <laughs> the means by which God leads us into salvation and lavishes on us all the good that he has in mind for us. Gratitude does that. Some folks don't have time to be grateful. Rarely do they stop to say thank you to the one who gives them health, strength, beauty, intellect, family, friends, and all things richly to enjoy, in consequence of which they never enter into the fullness of God. Gratitude, he says, is the little door that leads us into a fabulous place. The means by which we enter into a more complete, intimate relationship with God. The way by which we, more of his saving fullness, see more of his love for you and me. That's well said. The importance of gratitude. You want to know what worship of God looks like personally, privately? It's, it's having a thankful heart. Fostering that. Feeding that. Secondly, to worship God personally and privately is trust. I will trust, verse 2, and will not be afraid. Those times when we feel afraid, when we're concerned about the future, to worship God means to lean hard on Him, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. To trust in Him and realize He's got your life in His hands. And even though you don't see what God's doing, you trust that He is leading and guiding, and so you Rest rather than fear. 
believing what he says so that you give your fears to him, trust in his control in your situation. And third, and related to that, to worship God privately means to depend on his strength. He is my strength, verse 2 says. You see, to worship God means to depend on his life in you, the spirit of God, and to depend on his strength. And Lord, I don't have what it takes, but you do. I can't love this person, but you can. Lord, love this person through me. Lord, I don't want to forgive this person, but Lord, you've forgiven me. Therefore, will you forgive this person through me? I will submit to your strength in me. You see, to worship him means to depend on his strength in you. Fourth, to worship him privately means to sing. He is my song, my song. We come together and we sing corporately, but do you sing privately? I hope you do, at least in your thoughts. And I'm giving you permission to sing in the shower, (laughs) to sing your own songs to the Lord. Isn't it interesting what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 about this, where he says this, do not get drunk with wine, verse 18, Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk with wine. That's wasteful. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. And now he says what being filled with the Spirit looks like. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Okay, so talking to one another about the goodness of the Lord. But then it says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord and giving thanks always. There's that Thanksgiving piece again, right? But it says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You see, private worship, personal worship means whether you're singing out loud or not, that you are singing, at least in your heart. I hope you listen to the words of the songs. And I always have at least one song from Sunday morning that kind of sticks in my mind all week. I hope you do that. And if you think, I don't know the words, well, look them up on the Internet or take one of our sheets in back. All the words are in back there. Uh, You can take them home so you remember the words or whatever it is. But singing in your heart to the Lord and often verbally on your own is part of personal worship. And then verse three, drink, (laughs) drink from the springs of his salvation. Really drink from him. Find joy in him. Let your joy be in him. Jesus said, In John 7, verse 37, 38, he stood up on the last great day of the feast and he said, Is anybody here thirsty? (laughs) Come to me and drink. And out of you will flow rivers of living water. That's joy. He wants us to have joy. So you want to know how to privately worship him? You drink from him. All this delights the heart of God when our personal worship is like this and we're learning to find our personal joy in him. This has to do with your private devotional time, right? I, yes, you need that. But it has to do with your attitude all day long, right? A thankful heart, a singing heart, a dependent heart that's looking to him for strength. That kind of worship delights the heart of God. He wants us to be a worshiping people privately, but also corporately. And that's what he goes on to talk about now. It's public. It's corporate worship, verses 4 through 6, where he talks about speaking to one another with verse 4. You will say in that day to one another, really, 
Give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. See, the yous here are all plural. It's all speaking to one another. It's corporately coming together and declaring the wonders of God. Why should we worship him corporately? Well, he lists a couple things here. One is because of his amazing deeds. And so we should tell one another, hey, guess what God did? Let's talk about the amazing thing God has done. And we do that in our songs. We do that in our prayers. We do it here corporately. But in your Bible studies, wherever you are, speak about what God's done, his good and wondrous deeds. And then secondly, not just for his deeds, but for who he is, how great he is. Sing praises to the Lord, verse 5, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great In your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We worship him because of what he's done, but also just simply for who he is. You see, it delights the heart of God when we worship on our own in our hearts, but also when we gather together as the people of God and praise him. Both are needed. Both were created for. Both are things that give us a deeper joy in life when we privately worship and publicly worship. But this reminds us that there really is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Well, I only do private worship. I don't like coming together with all those people. You know, they're a pain to be with. Yeah, true. (laughs) That's why we get to practice forgiveness with each other, right? And forbearance. No, we're meant to come together and learn to love one another and learn to love him together. And let me just say, you know, some people read passages like this and God's call for us to worship him. And they think God must have a really big ego if he wants all this praise and worship. We think that way because that's the way we would be, right? That's human. That's our human response. But God's not like us. You see, God longs for us to worship him, not ultimately for what he gets out of it, but because of what he knows it does for us. He knows that only there, as we worship him in proper relationship and we're acknowledging how incredibly wonderful he is, that our hearts begin to be filled with the joy that he longs uh, longs for us to have and the wholeness and the peace and the shalom. And we're at rest in life and all that when we're properly worshiping him privately and publicly Why is this? Because, you see, if we're not worshiping God and thanking God, then as humans, what naturally happens is we begin trying to use God to get what we think we need out of life. Those are the two options. You're either worshiping him or you're trying to use him to get what you want out of life. And God will not play that game. And that's why you don't have joy when that's the way you approach God. So through Isaiah, God gives us a vision of what God wants to do in our lives. He wants to move us into a people who are unified, learning to love each other and forgive each other all our foibles and warts and all the problems and learning to care for one another deeply. And he's moving us to a place that we might worship him both privately and publicly. This is a picture of life in the new heavens and the new earth, brothers and sisters. But it's something we can begin now, right? We can be living in the reality of this new kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth, even now 
by the way we love one another and by the way we worship him because we are already citizens of that kingdom. This picture in this chat, in these verses is a picture of mankind at his best. It's God's goal for every human being on earth. And it's the crowning achievement of God and the kingdom of God when we begin living this out. When we, his people, are learning to be a unified people who love one another well and a worshiping people who learn to exalt the Lord both privately and together. What a beautiful picture of what God has for us. May we be people who cooperate with what he's doing in our lives rather than fight it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to have joy, real joy. And in this passage, you show us where that comes from by submitting to you and letting you do your work and drawing us together and making us one and in making us people who truly worship you individually and publicly, corporately. So now as we together worship you through a a couple more songs, may our hearts be lifted up to you and may we be the people that you created us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.